by me, Lord. What have I ever done to deserve even one of the pleasures I've known? Tell me, Lord, what did I ever do that was worth loving you? For the kindness you've shown, Lord, help me, Jesus. I've wasted it, so help me. This is our American stories. You're listening to Chris Christopherson singing his own composition. And by the way, we have Chris telling the story of how this song came to be. In our story of a song segment, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and listen to it. It'll move you. Christian or not, it'll move you. It's Chris's soul. It's Chris's story he's talking about after all. And all week long, we're celebrating the Bible because it's National Bible Week. FDR declared it so in 1941, the week of Thanksgiving. And whether you're a Christian or not, a Jew or not, this book... Well, it's helped inform Western civilization and the world, literature, arts, and music. And so today, we're going to focus on a writer named Malcolm Gladwell, who writes for The New Yorker and other literary magazines. And this book in 2013 that was my favorite was a book called David and Goliath, Underdogs, Misfits, and the Art of Battling Giants. Here's Malcolm talking about the story of David and Goliath in the Bible and why it had, well, captivated him for most of his life. Ancient Palestine had a, uh, along its eastern border, there's a mountain range, still same is true of Israel today, and in the mountain range are all of the ancient cities of that region. So Jerusalem, Bethlehem, Hebron. Um, And then there's a coastal plain, right, along the Mediterranean, where Tel Aviv is now. And connecting the mountain range with the coastal plain is an area called the Shephala, which is a series of valleys and ridges that run east to west. And you can follow the Shephala, through the, go through the Shephala to get from the coastal plain to the mountains. And the Shephala, if you've been to Israel, you'll know it's just about the most beautiful part of Israel. It's gorgeous with uh, forests of oak and wheat fields and vineyards. And, but more importantly, though, in the history of that region, it's served, it's had a, a, a real strategic function. And that is, it is the means by which hostile armies on the coastal plain find their way, get, get up into the mountains and threaten those living in the mountains. And 3,000 years ago, that's exactly what happens. The Philistines, who are the, the biggest of enemies of the kingdom of Israel, are living in the coastal plain. They're originally from Crete. They're a seafaring people. And they may start to make their way through one of the valleys of the Shephelah up into the mountains, because what they want to do is occupy the highland area right by Bethlehem and split the kingdom of Israel in two. And the kingdom of Israel, which is headed by King Saul, obviously catches wind of this, and Saul brings his army down from the mountains, and he confronts the Philistines in the Valley of Elah, one of the most beautiful of the valleys of the Shephelah. And the Israelites dig in along the northern ridge, and the, uh, the Philistines dig in along the southern ridge, And the two armies just sit there for weeks and stare at each other because they're deadlocked. Neither can attack the other because to attack the other side, you've got to come down 
the mountain into the valley, and then up the other side, and you're completely exposed. So finally, to break the deadlock, the Philistines send their mightiest warrior down into the valley floor, and he calls out and he says to the Israelites, send your mightiest warrior down, and we'll have this out, just the two of us. This was a tradition in ancient warfare called single combat. It was a way of settling disputes without incurring the bloodshed of a major battle. And the Philistine who is sent down, their mighty warrior, is a giant. He's six foot nine. Uh, he's outfitted head to toe in this glittering bronze armor. And he's got a sword and he's got a javelin and he's got a spear. He is absolutely terrifying. And he's so terrifying that none of the Israelite soldiers want to fight him. It's a, it's a death wish, right? There's no way they think they can take him. And finally, the only person who will come forward is this young shepherd boy. And he goes up to Saul and he says, I'll fight him. And Saul says, you, Saul says, you can't fight him. That's ridiculous. You're this kid. This is this mighty warrior. But the shepherd is adamant. He says, no, 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 you don't understand. I have been defending my flock against uh, lions and wolves for years. I think I can do it. And Saul has no choice. He's got no one else who's come forward. So he says, all right. And then he turns to the kid and he says, but you've got to wear this armor. You can't go as you are. So he tries to give the shepherd his armor, and the shepherd says, no. He says, I, I, I can't wear this stuff. I, I, the biblical verse says, I, have not, I cannot wear this, for I have not proved it. Meaning, I've never worn armor before. You've got to be crazy. So he reaches down instead on the ground and picks up five stones and puts them in his shepherd's bag and starts to walk down the mountainside to meet the giant. And the giant sees this figure approaching and calls out, Come to me so I can feed your flesh to the, to the birds of the heavens and the, and the beasts of the field, right? He issues this kind of taunt towards this person coming to fight him. And the shepherd draws closer and closer. And the giant sees that he's carrying a staff. That's all he's carrying, right? Instead of a weapon, just this shepherd's staff. And he says, am I a, he's insulted. Am I a dog that you would come to me with sticks, right? And the shepherd boy takes one of his stones out of his pocket, puts it in his sling, and whirls it around and lets it fly. And it hits the giant right between the eyes, like right here in his most vulnerable spot. And he falls down, either dead or unconscious. And the shepherd boy runs up and takes his sword and cuts off his head. And the Philistines see this, and they turn, and they just run. <laughs> and, of course, the name of the giant is Goliath. And the name of the shepherd boy is David. And the reason that story has obsessed me over the course of writing my book is that everything I thought I knew about that story turned out to be wrong. Indeed, and we'll find out what was wrong about that story and what was right. You're listening to Malcolm Gladwell, one of the great writers in this country, from Tipping Point to this book, David and Goliath. I'd urge you to pick it up, by the way, at Amazon.com. It's a terrific read. Celebrating the Bible all week long. It's National Bible Week. This is Our American Stories, more of Malcolm Gladwell's story about a biblical story that stuck with him his whole life.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue with our celebration of National Bible Week. And let's return to Malcolm Gladwell, who had just told the story of David and Goliath. Now he's about to tell you what he got wrong in his understanding of the story in the Bible that stuck with him throughout his entire life. So David in that story is supposed to be the underdog, right? In fact, that term, David and Goliath, has entered our language as a metaphor for improbable victories by some weak party over someone far stronger. Now, why do we call David an underdog? Well, we call him an underdog because he's a kid, little kid, and Goliath is this big, strong giant. We also call him an underdog because uh, Goliath is an experienced warrior, and David is just a shepherd, right? But most importantly, we call him an underdog because all he has is, is, giant, is, that, is that Goliath is outfitted with all of this modern weaponry, right? this glittering coat of armor and, a, and a, a sword and a javelin and a spear, and all David has is this sling. Well, let's start there with the phrase, all David has is this sling, because that's the first mistake that we make. In ancient warfare, there are three kinds of warriors. There's cavalry, men on horseback and in, with chariots. There is heavy infantry, which are foot soldiers, armed foot soldiers with uh, swords and shields and some kind of armor. And there is artillery. And artillery are archers, but more importantly, slingers. And a slinger is someone who has a leather pouch with two long cords attached to it. And they put a projectile, either a rock or a lead ball, inside the pouch. And they whirl it around like this. And they let one of the cords go. And the effect is to send the projectile forward at, um, uh, towards its target. Right? That's what David has. And it's important to understand that that sling is not a slingshot. It's not this, right? It's not a child's toy. It's, in fact, an incredibly devastating weapon. When David rolls it around like this, he's, he's turning his, uh, the sling around probably at six or seven revolutions per second. And that means that when the ball is, when the rock is released, it's going forward really fast, probably 35 meters per second. That's substantially faster than uh, uh, baseball thrown by um, even the finest of baseball pitchers. More than that, the stones in the Valley of Elah were not normal rocks. They were barium sulfate, which are rocks twice the density of normal stones. If you do the calculations on the ballistic, on the stopping power, of the rock fired from David's sling, it's roughly equal to the stopping power of a 45-millimeter handgun. Right? This is an incredibly devastating weapon. Accuracy, we know from uh, historical records that slingers uh, had, experienced slingers could hit um, and maim or, serious or, or even kill a target at distances of up to 200 yards. From medieval tapestries, uh, we know that slingers were capable of hitting birds in flight. They're incredibly accurate, right? When David lines up, and he's not 200 yards away from Goliath, he's quite close to Goliath. When he lines up and fires that thing at Goliath, there is, he has every intention and every expectation of being able to hit Goliath at his most vulnerable spot between his eyes. If you go back over the history of ancient warfare, you will find time and time again that slingers were the decisive factor against infantry in one kind of battle, against heavy infantry in one kind of battle um, or another. So what's Goliath? He's heavy infantry. And his expectation 
when he challenges the Israelites to a duel is that he's going to be fighting another heavy infantryman, right? When he says, come to me that I might feed your flesh to the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the field, the key phrase is come to me, come up to me because we're going to fight hand to hand like this. Saul has the same expectation. David says, I want to fight Goliath, and Saul tries to give him his armor because Saul is thinking, oh, when you say fight Goliath, you mean fight him in hand-to-hand combat, infantry on infantry. But David has absolutely no expectation. No, he's not going to fight him that way. Why would he? He's a shepherd. He's spent his entire career using a sling to defend his flock against lions and wolves. That's where his strength lies. So here he is, this shepherd, experienced in the use of a devastating weapon, up against this lumbering giant weighed down by a hundred pounds of armor and these incredibly heavy weapons that are useful only in short-range combat. Goliath is a sitting duck. He doesn't have a chance, right? So why do we keep calling David an underdog, and why do we keep referring to his victory as improbable? the second piece of this that's important. It's not just that we misunderstand David and his choice of weaponry. It's also that we profoundly misunderstand Goliath. Goliath is not what he seems to be. Um, There's all kinds of hints of this in the biblical text. Um, Things that are, in retrospect, are quite puzzling and don't square with his image as this mighty warrior. So to begin with, the Bible says that Goliath is led onto the valley floor by an attendant. Now that is weird, right? Here is this mighty warrior going, challenging the Israelites to one-on-one combat. Why is he being led by the hand, by some, you know, young boy, presumably, to the point of combat? Secondly, the Bible story uh, makes special note of how slowly Goliath moves, Another odd thing to say when you're describing the mightiest warrior known to man at that point, right? And then there's this whole weird thing about how long it takes Goliath to react to the the sight of David. So David's coming down the mountain, and he's clearly not preparing for hand-to-hand combat, right? There is nothing about him that says, I'm about to fight you like this. He's not even carrying a sword. Why does Goliath not react to that? It's as if he's oblivious to what's going on that day. And then there's this strange, that strange comment he makes to David. Am I a dog that you should come to me with sticks? Right? Sticks? David only has one stick. Well, it turns out that there's been a great deal of speculation within the medical community over the years about uh, whether there's something wrong with, fundamentally wrong with Goliath an attempt to make sense of all of those apparent anomalies. There been many articles written. The first one was in 1960 in the Indiana uh, Medical Journal. And it started a chain of speculation that starts with an explanation for Goliath's height. So Goliath is head and shoulders above all of his peers in that era. And usually when someone is that far out of the norm, there's an explanation for it. So the most common form of giantism Uh, is a condition called acromegaly. And acromegaly is caused by a benign tumor on your uh, pituitary gland that causes an overproduction of human growth hormone. And throughout history, many of the most famous giants have all had acromegaly. So the tallest person of all time was a guy named Robert Wadlow, who was still growing when he died at the age of 24, and he was 8 foot 11. 
he had acromegaly. Do you remember the wrestler Andre the Giant, famous? He had acromegaly. There's even speculation that uh, Abraham Lincoln had acromegaly. Anyone who's unusually tall, that's the first uh, explanation we come up with. And acromegaly has a very distinct set of side effects associated with it, principally having to do with uh, vision. Uh, The pituitary tumor, as it grows, often starts to compress the visual nerves in your brain, with the result that people with acromegaly have either uh, double vision or they are profoundly nearsighted. So when, we, when people have started to speculate about what might have been wrong with Goliath, they've said, wait a minute, he looks and sounds an awful lot like someone who has acromegaly. And that would also explain so much of what was strange about his behavior that day. Right? Why does he move so slowly and have to be escorted down into the valley floor by an attendant? Because he can't make his way on his own. Right? Why is he so strangely oblivious to David? that he doesn't understand that David's not going to fight him until the very last moment because he can't see him, right? When he says, come to me that I might feed your flesh to the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the field, the phrase come to me is a hint also of his vulnerability. Come to me because I can't see you, right? And then there's, uh, am I a dog that you should come to me with sticks? He sees two sticks when David has only one. So the Israelites up on the mountain ridge looking down on him thought he was this extraordinarily powerful foe. What they didn't understand was that the very thing that was the source of his apparent strength was also the source of his greatest weakness. And there is, I think, in that a very important lesson for all of us. Giants are not as strong and powerful as they seem. And sometimes the shepherd boy has a sling in his pocket. And there you have it, Malcolm Gladwell's take on David and Goliath. I might add a little bit on my take, which is that David was an obedient servant to God, and so he had God on his side too. The David and Goliath story, Malcolm Gladwell's take, a celebration of National Bible Week all week long, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and our next story, well, it's about a crooked cop, an innocent man, and an unlikely journey of forgiveness and friendship. It all went down in the city of Benton Harbor, Michigan, in 2006. Andrew Collins was a narcotics officer. Jamel McGee was the brand new father of a beautiful baby boy. Let's go to what we'll call a split screen of these two men on how that day went down Starting with Jamel. February 8th, 2006 was the day that forever changed my life. February 8th, 2006, really just another day for me. All I wanted to do was go to the store and get some milk for my son. All I wanted on that day was another conviction. So I caught a ride from some guys that I knew that probably would be up to no good. I had caught a guy with some crack. 
he knew a guy with some more crack, so he made a phone call. So we get to the store, and this guy asked me to use the phone. At the time, I didn't think anything of it, so I gave him my phone. So I get to the store, and I see the vehicle, just like I was told. One guy in the vehicle, and another guy comes out of the store. I'm not sure if he has something to do with it, but I'm going to make sure he has something to do with it. So I'm coming out the store, and this guy's approaching me, talking about he's a cop. Where's the dope? I'm like, what dope? I don't have any dope. I ain't got no dope. It ain't my dope. How many times have I heard this before? That's what everybody says. So I had him lock him up. How could I be going to jail for some drugs that isn't mine? How is this possible? Trial? He's going to take it to trial the way that I wrote that report? He's going to take it to trial? Oh, what a waste of my time. Well, I wasn't about to plead guilty to something that I know I didn't do. So I told my story, and I got my conviction. And Jamel McGee was sentenced to 10 years in federal prison. Wrongly accused, wrongly convicted, and wrongly imprisoned, Jamel was sentenced to federal prison, as we just heard, for 10 years for dealing drugs, a crime he didn't commit. Here's Jamel on what he was feeling after he heard the prison doors close behind him. Um, I felt like I had lost everything. There was nothing else that mattered at this point. So my attitude was, I don't care. So that was my goal for whenever I got home, was to find him and hurt him. Jamel continued to battle with his demons. So <clears throat> after battling with these, these thoughts, I'm getting headaches trying to block it out, okay? Because I don't want to hear them. I'm trying to put something else in my head to get these thoughts out of my head. And I quickly realized that every situation, I had a choice. Before it even happened, I had a choice. But I chose the more convenient, easy way every time, which led me to foster care, juvenile, the links, the boys' homes, the prisons, the jails. My decisions led me there. So <clears throat> I'm like, you know what, God, it's your way. I'm tired of being in my way. I'm tired of this. My way hasn't worked all these years. So I need something different. I got a son. I want to see him. I want to be able to raise him. I want to be a part of his life. So I got to do something different with mine. So I get back to my cell and I prayed before I went to sleep. And I was like, you know what, God? I want to wake up tomorrow as if I'm at home. So I want to live every day after this as if I'm at home. So I got up that morning. My first thing to do was speak to somebody which was very hard for me to do. And I came out and I was just like, all right, hey. First person I saw, hey, how you doing? They looking at me like, this dude is crazy, who is this? <laughs> like, but I didn't care at that point what nobody thought. Cause I said, I was gonna go through with this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna adapt this change into my life. I'm gonna do something different. Here's Jamel on what happened shortly after his heart changed. I go to work this one morning and the people were calling me as soon as I got to work. So I go to the council office and he was like, the fax machine beeped and he handed me the paper and it was a letter from the judge saying my conviction was overturned and I had to leave the premises immediately. So if y'all didn't catch that, we can try all we want to. 
It just don't work that way. It just won't work. God has the say-so. He has the ultimate plan. He did that. He, me letting that, that anger, that frustration go, God opened the door for me to go. Jamel served four years of his 10-year sentence. But why the early release? Well, here's Andrew Collins, that narcotics officer we heard from earlier, who falsified the evidence that led to Jamel's imprisonment. He shares with us what happened to him exactly one year before Jamel was set free. So February of 2008, I get caught with crack, heroin, and marijuana in my office. And in one day, my life crumbled. All the money that I was making, legally and and illegally, gone. Friends that I had built, friends who I thought would be there for a lifetime. Nobody knows a police officer like a police officer. Y'all are my boys. Gone. Because they were worried about their careers. Rightly so. My family, having to see my wife's face when I was trying to explain to her that I just lost my job. And in a day, it was gone. So I went on a three-day journey. Day one got caught. Day two thought about suicide. There's no way I can get out of this. Day three, went and saw a pastor. Because on day two, my wife came home from work and saw that I was depressed and said, you need to go talk to that pastor that you've been going to. So I called that pastor up and I said, I got to talk to you. He said, yeah, you do. I've seen the news. So I sit down with him and I tell him, I, I, I confessed everything. It felt so good to get it out of me, to finally admit what I had done wrong. And he listened patiently and he said, whoo, boy, you're in trouble. <laughs> I remember thinking like, you, sir, are a terrible counselor. <laughs> like, I know I'm in trouble. What do I do now? And he said, where are you at with Jesus? So we knelt down there in his office and he prayed because I felt like if I talked to God, he'd strike me dead right there. I still couldn't wrap my mind around grace. We said, amen, I was bawling and I said, what do I do next, man? I'm a man, there's like a list. There's gotta be a list of things I can do. Give me a list and I'll check off the boxes. He said, read your Bible, that's it. Get to know your Lord. I was like, I don't know if you ever read that thing, pastor, but it's it's kinda boring. He's like, no, man, God did something in you today. He gave me a a Bible that was a little easier to read for me from what I grew up in, and I started reading. I was blown away at all the little bombs that were going off in my soul about Jesus dealing with people that were just as jacked up or even worse than me. And the longer I was away from police work, the less I felt bad I got caught and the more I felt bad for what I had done. So I went to the FBI and I said, look, I want to right my wrongs. So I sat down, they put a, a stack of uh, reports in front of me and they said, we need you to look through all these reports and we need, to te- we need you to tell us which ones are bad. And I said, honestly, out of these 200 cases, it'd be easier to highlight the ones that are good. My corruption ran deep. And I started working it out one case at a time, one case at a time, one case at a time. And one of those cases was Jamel McGee. I opened it up and I said, that's a bad case. It's a bad case. It's a bad case. And this is a heck of a story I couldn't wrap my mind around grace, this detective said. Read your Bible, get to know your Lord, his pastor said. Both of these men on a spiritual journey, both born in very different circumstances, one side of the law and the other. And when we come back, more of this remarkable story about grace, about love, about God, and so much more. A crooked cop, an innocent man, and an unlikely journey of forgiveness and friendship. Jamel's story, Andrew's story, here on Our American Stories. 
This is Our American Stories. We return to our story about a crooked cop, an innocent man, and an unlikely journey of forgiveness and friendship. And when we left off, Andrew Collins had come clean, given his life to Christ, and he lived happily ever after, right? Well, not exactly. January 09, Officer Collins pled guilty and got a three-year prison sentence. And in February of 09, Jamel was set free. A switch. But the story does not stop there. 2010, August, I get out. So I reach out to a pastor of a local church up there, and he says, we're having this thing in August of 11 called Hoops, Hip Hop, and Hot Dogs, H3. So I said, I want to be a part of that. So I'm standing in Broadway Park, like, okay, where are the people that I need to be reconciled with? Bring them, Lord. Bring them, Lord. Benton Harbor is a small town, by the way, maybe a little too small. Here's Jamel on what happened that day in August 2011. I got out. Um, I got to meet my son for the first time. Um, and he wanted to go to this park. It was, he's seen a lot of people standing out there. So I'm like, all right, come on, let's go. Walking down the sidewalk, I'm like, I thought I seen Andrew in, up under the pavilion. I'm like, no, that can't be him. Not in Broadway Park. And he turned around and I'm like, yeah, that's him. In my mind, the first thing that popped up was, get him, get him. Now he's here, he's in front of you. All that I was feeling in the prison was back on my shoulders. So I go over there, beeline stuck out my hands. I said, hey, you remember me? And he said, yeah, when he said it, I squeezed him. And in my mind was, two things. It was myself again telling me to hit him. Hit him. What are you waiting on? You're taking too long. Hit him. Then God was like, hey. (laughs) God was like, hey, I got this. Get out of my way. I got this. Step out of my way. Let me avenge this for you. I got this. I can do far more than you ever can. So I'm like, hmm, hit him. (laughs) Hit him. And my son was right there, and I was just like, just explain to my son why I missed out on these years of his life, because I'm having a hard time doing it. And I, I let him go, and I walked away. And each step I walked away, I felt lighter, I felt better. The closer I got to the curve, I began to think, man, that's over with. I'm lead that to God where it was supposed to be. I can't do nothing about it anyway. Forget it, I'll never see him again anyway. What are the chances that they never saw each other again? What a scene, by the way, in a movie, huh? And by the way, as the mainstream media covered this incredible story, they left God out of it. And by the way, this is one of the things we will talk about on this show. You don't have to be a Christian to love the show, and you can be an atheist and love the show. But messing with who people are by removing parts of their lives is just despicable. And the God story here is central to the story. Andrew Collins picks up the story by telling us how he picked up his own life after the time he spent in prison. 
So I start working for this place called the Mosaic CCDA, Christian Community Development Association. Cafe Mosaic, if you all have ever been there, downtown Benton Harbor, great place to go get a coffee. So I'm working there as the cafe manager. There's another part of the program called Jobs for Life, where people from the community, maybe they've got felonies on their record, maybe they've never had a job before, and they need a little bit of hand up. They don't need a hand out, they need a hand up because they want to do something with their life. They go through Jobs for Life, they graduate Jobs for Life, and then they either get absorbed into one of our social enterprises or they went out and got jobs with uh, a community people that we had made uh, contact with. Everybody in Jobs for Life, every student, ended up with a mentor. Anybody putting two and two together yet? <laughs> one day, Miss Princella comes down because she runs Jobs for Life. She says, hey, there's this guy in my class called Zuki. Do you know Zuki? I want to introduce you guys to my, my friend Zuki. Uh, I said, no, I know the street name. I've heard it, but I don't think I know him personally. Don't think we ever met. Would you be his mentor? God has laid it on my heart that you should be his mentor. (laughs) God's funny, right? (laughs) So I said, you know my story, Miss P. You know what I've done in this city. I don't know if I've affected his family. Why don't you go ask him uh, what he thinks about it? So Jamel, in two minutes or less, what did that conversation sound like? Yeah. It was like um, she came over and was, I was sitting in class. Everybody had a mentor. And she was like, yeah, we finally got your mentor. She was like, yeah, God has laid it on my heart for you two guys to be mentor, mentee. And um, I don't know if you guys had any history together, but, um, yeah, I think you guys should be mentor. I'm like, okay, get on with it. Who is it? And she's like, Andrew Collins. And I'm like, no. <laughs> no way. There's no way I'm doing that. Jamel wasn't finished. She was like, okay, fine, we'll get you somebody else. And I'm like, wait a minute, Miss P. That was my decision. Let me pray on that real fast. Because I don't want no more of my decisions to affect my life. This was my decision. So I wanted to be God's decision. So I prayed, and I opened my eyes, and there was a book on my desk, and there was two figures on a um, mountain that was written in words, and it was one pulling the other one up. I was like, all right, God, you got it. It's evident this is the path you want me to take. I'm going to take it. All right, God, you got it. And by the way, this is why so many of us have prayer lives, and it's not just Christians, it's Jews, it's Muslims. Because Sometimes we get in the way of the right decision. Our own egos, our own pride, men particularly, women too, pride, the thing that gets in the way almost all the time. And that's what was getting in the way for Jamel. And by the way, when he said, that was my decision, let me pray on that real fast. How you could have left that out of this story, which, by the way, look up this story all over the media, CBS, ABC, you name it, it was covered. And this was left out, this prayer. God, I don't know how you do that. Again, I just don't know how you do that with good conscience. So these two guys, well, they're going to be together. Here's Andrew on meeting the guy who he would be mentoring, a guy who had only been referred to as Zuki. So we sit down. I say, hey, uh, I used to be a police officer in the city of Ben Harbor. I did some awful things. If I've ever harmed you or your family, can you let me know? I'd like to apologize for it. And he's smiling at me the whole time. I'm like, what does this dude smiling at me? This ain't funny. I'm trying to be serious. And I said, so once I got done with my little spiel, I said, look, man, what's so funny? And he just shook his head. He said, man, we already had this talk. I said, we did. He said, yeah, Broadway Park. 
And I was instantly flashed back to that moment in the park. And I was like, oh, shoot. <laughs> and I just went to apologize and do, I am so sorry. I felt like God gave me a second chance. I'm so sorry. He said, I know. And he was like offended. I know. I said, dude, there's got to be something I can do. He's like, no, no, no. It's over. It's over. You were sorry then and I trusted that. And I know you are now. You don't have to say it anymore. It's forgiven. It's done. I was like, dude, can we, can we do this mentor thing? He said, I think God wants us to. I think God set this up. I said, man, this is, this is blowing my mind, dude. Like four minutes ago, I'm making chocolate chip cookies. Can, can, and now this, like this is, this, can we pray? <laughs> He's like, let's pray. So we, we, we bowed our heads right there and we prayed that God would bless this friendship, that God would make uh, basically beauty for ashes. And we prayed that. And he got up. We said amen. He got up and walked out because he had an appointment to get to. And I went in the back and cried like a child because I felt forgiven. <laughs> and then I was, we were meeting every week. And I was like, yo, bro, we, we need an employee in the cafe. And you need a job. Uh, are you, do uh, you need a job? He's like, yeah, I need a job. You know I need a job. I said, well, how about this? Because what if, what if I hire you? Or what if we hire you? And, and you be, and are you a good worker? Because if I've got to write you up, Things are already tense enough, you know, like, ah. <laughs> and he did that. He just smiled at me. This dude smiled. It's like, it breaks down all board. He's like, no, nah, man, no, nah, I got you. I got you. And he started working. He was the best worker I had ever seen. I worked so hard. I'd never seen somebody work so hard in that cafe. So every day I say, thank you, Jamel. Thank you so much for, for putting your all into this. And this is amazing. Thank you. Do you want to hit me? <laughs> He'd be like, what? I'd be like, I just want to check. I just want to make sure. Because I don't want to be at the cash register someday and then just get your big old. I want to make sure I know it's coming if it's coming. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, no, bro, no. We're good. And it's so real. It's so real. It's so authentic. What a beautiful story about forgiveness, brokenness, and true reconciliation by two guys who should be hardened, bitter enemies. Jamel wrote the book about his story entitled Convicted, A Crooked Cop, An Innocent Man, and An Unlikely Journey of Forgiveness and Friendship. And that he was able to say to this guy, it's over, it's done. Think about that in your own lives. If you could say those words to bitterness you'd held on to. And again, this is the power of God in people's lives. I think God wants us to. I think God set this up. Let's make beauty from ashes. Well, let's all make beauty from ashes. If this story can teach us one thing, it's possible. And so we're so happy to have brought you Andrew's story, Jamel's story, this story of a little Benton Harbor, Michigan. It could be happening all over this country, folks. And if the media would only report the source of so much of this reconciliation, not the fake reconciliation they talk about in the news, this is the real thing. And something tells me God's behind a lot of it. Their stories here on Our American Stories.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and from everything in between. And we love telling stories about American dreamers. And as always, our American Dreamers series is sponsored by the great folks at Job Creators Network, who work hard to help effectuate policies that turn small businesses into bigger ones. And our own Alex Cortez brings us the story of someone that you likely don't know named Bill Austin, but you'll be glad to have met him. Let's take a listen. No one had ever paid for a quarter of school for me. I had to earn my own money, and I took a job making earpieces for hearing aids. I didn't really expect at all to be in the hearing aid business. I thought it was a boring nothing business. I was going to be heroic and save lives as a doctor. And what do I care about old people? I was going to be with the young nurses in the hospital <laughs> doing great things. And uh, But an old man came in and no one was able to help him. And they asked me if I could take a look at him. And I did. And when I saw what it meant in his eyes, that was my first like real direct contact with somebody helping them with hearing. And when I saw what that meant to him, it was like giving him life. I went home to uh, 2770 Dean Boulevard down by the Calhoun Beach Hotel where I was staying and I had a cot upstairs and I went upstairs, sat on the edge of the cot. I do remember on the way home, there was a quote in the cantilever of the bus that struck me and I lived my life kind of in that direction and said, the true path to humility is not to stoop till you're lower than yourself, but rather to stand at your true height against some greater nature that will show the real smallness of your greatest greatness. And that's how I felt. I didn't want to be falsely humble. I wanted to be challenged like that by some greater nature. I got home and I sat on the cot. And as I sat on the edge of the cot, I started talking out loud to myself, just like I was talking to somebody, but there was no one there. And I said, Bill, the reason you want to be a doctor is so you can help people. If you do this work, you'll be able to help people and you won't kill anyone. As a doctor, you're sure to kill many. And I realized something that I hadn't seen before. I saw the future and knew what I wanted to be part of. I realized at that moment, I said, Bill, how many people can you help a day as a doctor? 20, 25, night will fall, no one will be coming then, you'll wake up the next day and it'll be again serving those people that you can serve if you work with teams of people, the hands of many. Coming together in a business, your products and services can touch an unlimited number of people. You'll have the leverage to move the world. And I wanted to be part of that team. I didn't have to own it. I didn't have to run it. I've always felt like no one works for me, I work with them. I just saw that as the future, and I had to go to work to get to the future. And so the first thing I did, the only asset I had 
was a little rental house that I'd made money during the Korean War. Scrap metal was valuable, and I took the axe to many a vintage car. I chopped them up and sold them for scrap, and I made enough money to invest in a little rental house. And that's all I had was that little rental house. So I sold that house, and that was the money I used to start the business. I had $3,000, and I had to make a profit before I ran out of money. I'd read books that said, uh, well, you know, you got to expect to have financing for the first five years, or it'll be at least three years before you're profitable when you start a new business. Well, I figured I had three months. I didn't have a choice. I was down to the last money to meet my cost that week at the end of three months. And the next week, the checks arrived more than enough to cover that week, and I barely made it. I'd receive an order. I said, you know, hearing is the connection to the family and life, and who knows, this might be a graduation or a, a wedding of a child or something for this person's hearing aid that we're servicing. So at the end of the day, the last pickup of mail was about 5.30 or so in front of our facility. If there was one order that was completed after the mail pickup, just even one order, I would always put it in the car, drive it downtown to the main post office, go to the back up on the dock, ask the guys working there which box was going out, which was being processed next, and I would put it in that gurney to make sure that that hearing aid was moving back to the person who needed it. There wasn't as much profit in that transaction as the gas that it took to go there and come back. But to me, the most important thing was to not let down someone who trusted me with that service. And I wanted to do the best I could every single time. And I got stacks of letters from people saying they never received service like this, and the word spread. And so our business grew rapidly. And what a voice, Bill Austin's. And it's like so many of our American Dreamers stories. Starting out with nothing, taking that little rental house and well, taking a chance. And in the end, really providing a service to people, changing their lives. Hearing aids doesn't seem so glamorous. It didn't seem so glamorous to Bill. And when we come back, we're going to continue with Bill Austin's story. He's the founder of Starkey Hearing Technologies. His story, here on Our American Stories. And we 
continue with our American stories and Bill Austin's story. And Bill picks up things with the story of how hearing loss used to be addressed many decades ago. Um, you know, the cupped hand, <laughs> a horn from an animal, the wide surface of a fan, the sound would strike it and you could hold it in your teeth and uh, the vibration would go through your teeth and stimulate the other ear. There was acoustic chairs that would pick up, uh, like in lion's mouth, the sound and you could have a, a discreet tube you'd stick in your ear. There hearing canes people would walk with and then they'd hold their cane up and try to talk to you. There, there were all kinds of non-electric things made in the 1800s. At the turn of the century, Miller Reese Hutchins in Mobile, Alabama had developed the Acousticon, an electronic hearing aid, which was used at a coronation in Great Britain. They were A and B batteries. You'd strap something on your leg. Uh, you'd have something under your clothes, and then you'd have a giant microphone, which would be about that big around. You'd wear outside on your chest to hear with, and big, thick black cords running up to the ear. And so the aids used to be uh, large. You'd, sometimes you'd carry them. Some of the electronic aids, you'd have two people carry and put it in a room for a businessman to sit there and talk with. And then the transistor was developed in the 50s, and hearing aids were one of the first things that transistors went into, actually. That made it possible to make them a lot smaller. We made eyeglass hearing aids that Eleanor Roosevelt wore in her glasses, the Otarian. Big, thick, huge bows no one was supposed to know. I mean, the things were so thick, they were <laughs> thick. And you know, they won't know I wear hearing aids because they're in my glasses. <laughs> I don't know who wouldn't know. And they had barrette models that you could hide in your hair and earring models that were big, clunky looking earrings that would clip on your ears and uh, different ways to try to make hearing aids discreet and uh, they were pretty big. I felt, I could just feel people and I felt that they felt impaired and stigmatized because they were wearing something hanging outside. And I said, that's like a crutch. If we can put it in the ear, and if it's custom made for their ear, it'll be like part of them. And they will feel better about the correction. And I looked at the space in the ear and I said, that's just unused space. I can take these parts that are strung out in mass produced hearing aids and recombine them into the space. I can get them in the space so I can make these things. In 1961, I made the first really nice in-the-ear hearing aids. And that was considered, uh, you know, kind of revolutionary at the time. And people would call it an invention. I never called it an invention. As far as I was concerned, I was just reconfiguring components to fit in space that happened to exist in the ear. <laughs> Hearing Aid Magazine asked me, in 1979, what will be the future of the hearing aid business? And I said, there is no future, because in the future, we will really be in the communication business, helping people communicate across barriers of language, distance, noise, to help people with normal hearing. 
communicate and function better. 39 years later, in August of 2018, Starkey unveiled Livio AI, a hearing aid that does just that. Translate 27 languages, forwards and backwards, Russian to English, English to Russian, it doesn't matter. Starkey's relentless pursuit of innovation in service of their fellow man has led the company to grow to $650 million in annual revenue, making it the largest hearing aid manufacturer in America and leading Forbes to estimate Bill's personal net worth at $2.5 billion. I had to go to work for money, I'd stay home. I, I just, it doesn't motivate me. It does not motivate me. I'm not interested. I haven't ever been interested. I knew I, it's unhandy to run out of it, and you have to treat it with respect and not waste it. But uh, as far as being motivated, somebody saying, this could be really big, you can have a really lot of money. I, like, I'm about as bored by that as I can imagine. What is exciting is to have the resources to say, yes, we can. And this Yes We Can is most seen in their Starkey Hearing Foundation, which is Bill's primary focus, not running the company. <laughs> They've given the gift of hearing to those who can't afford it in over 100 countries and to over 1 million people so far. So we uh, have an opportunity to earn from our service that we give to those who can pay and then if we do a really good job, we have enough left over that we can help those that need our help. And, you know, I usually manage to use up most of our money. I, I find good uses for it. I travel the world helping people with hearing aids. More than half the year I'm traveling because it's what I know how to do. I'll do thousands and thousands of hearing aids per year myself. I've listened to more hearing aids than anyone in the world many, many times over. And I could make more money, I guess, if I concentrated on work, but I wouldn't know life. So I trade money for life. You know, there's no other person that is president of a hearing aid company or a CEO. None, none in the world that would do what I do. For sure. There are six companies, soon to be five, that make 98% of the world's hearing aids. We're the only one in the U.S. The other ones, they never touch a patient. They've never fit a hearing aid in their lives, not one of them. Several layers down, it's all suits and business. There's none of them that would take the time to work on deformed ears. Like, I took the time to detail those very difficult ears that were sent pictures of. They're just hugely deformed. I'll go over there after you leave, and I'll cut the shells, and then I'll go up and show the technician how to build them. Anyone else would say, my time's worth too much. That's just one little pair of hearing aids, one order. They would say, you know, I've got million-dollar businesses to, to, to take care of here. I can't do that sort of thing. Well, I can do it. If you pay someone else to do it, it's like, uh, I'm, I'm wealthy, I'm rich here, I, I feel guilty, so here's some money. But no one makes more time. When you give your time, you give yourself. Where does Bill Austin get this view on life? 
I couldn't rationalize the existence of God. I mean, I just couldn't rationalize it any way I think about it and think about it. And in my very early 20s, I was thinking about what God would tell me to do if he could talk, but I just kept trying to think for him. I never asked. And the greatest thing I ever did was ask. I don't know what possessed me to do that because I never had before. I just said, I'm not going to think about it anymore. <laughs> I'm going to accept on faith alone. That was the best thing I ever did because the direction I received was better than any idea I've ever had. It's given me life because I've been able to focus on what's really important. And so my idea of wealth, if you had to say, Bill, are you wealthy? It's not a, it's not a number in the billions. It's not a money. I'm wealthy if someone needs a hand up, if I can say, yes, I can, I, I'll help you. That lifts me up. I'm spiritually nourished by the work I do. I feel energized. And if I ever had to say, I, I'm sorry, I can't do that, I would feel poor. I would feel very poor. And my goodness, this is more than just a business or a startup or entrepreneur story. And again, this is what we've discovered doing these American Dreamers series. And they're, they're just, each time I hear them, I'm just more stunned each time. The generosity of these guys, the nature of the people, especially these founders. He, he wanted to solve a problem. And he did. People felt impaired and stigmatized from these large things hanging off their ears. And he goes, I just wanted to custom make them for their ears so it would become a part of them. And that changes someone's life. And then on top of that, here he is giving away over a million, again, a million hearing aids for nothing. For nothing. That's some social justice, folks. I mean, creating jobs, creating a tax base, solving a problem, and then giving away one million, one million hearing aids, which you could have charged someone for. When we come back, more of this remarkable story, Bill Austin's story, a part of our American Dreamers series here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories and Bill Austin's story, the billionaire hearing aid CEO who spends most of his time fitting hearing aids on individual customers. When the president of Burundi, we were there a few years ago, and I was fitting people in church at a congregation of 8,000, and they televised the service, and they asked me to come up to the church. I was fitting on the grounds behind the church, and say something and so I came and spoke to the congregation and I, I stepped down and the president got up and he said can you believe that the Starkey people came all the way from Minnesota to help us and he said and Bill Austin left his and I knew I knew the next word before he said it I knew he was going to say he left his family 
to be with us. And, and I started, I said, no. And he goes ahead and says family. And I said, no, 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 that's wrong. I didn't leave my family. I came here that I might know the rest of my family. And that's just the way I feel. That came out of me without me thinking about it. I had no control over my voice. This is the president of the country and I'm interrupting him when he's talking on TV and I'm, I'm, in, I'm in the audience. I was headed out the door to go back and fit hearing aids and I, all of a sudden I just started shouting, no, that's wrong. I, I didn't leave my family. Juarez, Mexico used to be one of the most dangerous border cities. When it was at the height of its bad problems, I went there and a woman came into this hospital where we were doing the mission with her grandson, who was about 13 years old. She said, I've been waiting a month for you to come. She didn't live there. She lived quite a ways away. And I said, well, why didn't you go home? And she said, I couldn't because I might have missed you. And she said, I, I can't live much longer. And my grandson won't be able to take care of himself if he can't hear. When I had the boy hearing good, you should have seen that woman's face. It went from all of this weight of the world on her to just total light. It was like she was happy that she could die to see someone truly happy that they can die. She had been willing herself to stay alive because she knew her grandson, who was an orphan, couldn't take care of himself. He had no one else. I saw a woman in El Salvador, early 30s, and her kidneys failed. She lost her eyesight. Her hearing was fading out and they asked her if she had any last wishes. And she said, I would like to thank the people who have cared for me. I, I, I need to hear to be able to thank the people. And they said, well, someone's coming. We were coming in about three weeks. There's someone coming with hearing aids, but you won't be able to live that long. And she said, yes, I will. And she did. They brought her in in a wheelchair. I fit her with hearing aids. Probably about the only time that tears were just running down my cheeks because of the nobility of this woman, not asking for something for herself, but just wanting to be able to thank people. She was so happy. She did thank them. She lived another over two weeks before she died. I learn from every patient I work on because I really care. I've done like six U.S. presidents and Nelson Mandela and Mother Teresa, two popes. I mean, I work on everybody. Movie stars, Steve Martin, Ozzy was just here, Charlton Heston, to whoever. The people that I used to watch, Gene Autry and Roy Rogers when I was a kid, little boy, they they become my friends. Billy Graham used to say, Bill's my best friend from Minnesota, and Gene Autry would said I was his best friend. The only thing he was buried with was something I gave him that he treasured more than anything else. You know, I fit Robert Schuller and Hugh Hefner the same day. I have no barriers. And so people really respond to being cared about. 
And some people, even though they're really important, like movie stars and rock stars and celebrities, they have people chasing them all the time because of who they are, wanting their picture with them, wanting this, wanting that. I don't want anything, and they know it. And to have someone care about them who's not looking for something is very special to them. Special to them to feel that, to be cared about without, what am I going to get? I'm going to get my picture with this guy. I'm going to get to go to his rock concert. I'm going to get something. And I'll be invited to go to rock concerts and things by people who come here, and, and I don't go because I'm too busy. I don't have time for it. So they recognize that. So we're on uh, kind of on the same plane, person to person. Instead of them being in the celebrity world and me being a celebrity chaser, they'd like to relate to some people in their lives like that. You know, Warren Buffett came here one day to get hearing aids, and the day he came, I just flown in a whole plane load of kids from the Idaho School for the Deaf. And I'd fit the kids in Oregon at School for the Deaf and Washington School for the Deaf. I got home and Idaho said, what about us? And I said, well, I can't come back, but I'll charter a plane and bring the whole school down. And I was working on them and Warren came in and so I'm gonna take care of anybody that shows up. And so I'm detailing impressions over there on that motor and then I was cutting shells over here and Warren comes up watching me and I said, would you like to have lunch? Yeah, yeah, he said, let's have lunch. I said, well, the cafeteria is right up that ramp. Go up there and you can find anything you want to eat, Warren. And I could see the disappointment in his face. And I said, Warren, the conference room is open, just bring your tray in there. So he thought I was going to join him. Well, anyway, he comes in here, and I'm busy cutting aids for the shells. And so I told Mark McCarthy, I said, go in there and talk to Warren while he's having lunch. And he came out, and he's frustrated because he can't get my attention. So he pulls out this big, thick billfold. It's like almost three inches thick. It's huge, thick wallet. And he holds it out in front of me, and I'm down there cutting shells, and he said, do you want Warren's money? And I said, no, I don't need Warren's money. <laughs> he wanted to buy my company because he couldn't get my attention. And the company isn't for sale, and I don't want to sell it. And I told him, I said, it wouldn't be the same. They're looking at what's your return, what's the shareholder return, what are you making? I'm giving a lot away. That wouldn't go over so big. I could have sat here and had lunch with a guy. Some people pay a couple million dollars to have lunch with him. He came to me and I didn't have lunch with him. And the reason I didn't have lunch with him is why had some poor kids that no one knows from Idaho that needed my help. So what am I gonna do? Neglect them because some big deal is here? And what a what a story. Uh, Warren Buffett has a net worth of over $80 billion, and yet Bill Austin didn't treat him any differently. He was busy fitting hearing aids for the kids at that Idaho school for the deaf, and then he helped Warren Buffett. 
And I just love it. He said, look, there are people paying a million dollars to have lunch with this guy, but not me. Oh, and by the way, Warren, my business isn't for sale. It's not for sale. When we come back, more of this remarkable American voice, and this is a distinctly American voice, Bill Austin's story, our American Dreamers series, as always, brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network. More after these messages. Continue with our American stories in the final portion of this remarkable life story of Starkey Hearing Technologies founder, Bill Austin. Well, I think the shaping of my life began with my grandparents living with them during World War II. My parents were off working in a munitions plant in another state. But I asked my grandfather about his father who died when I was a baby. And he said, well, the thing that struck him about his father wasn't what he did as much as the way he did it. He said, for instance, when he was eight years old, some people moved in three and a half miles from them. And his father heard that they had uh, children, but they had no cow. And he told his son Franklin, my grandfather, which was his youngest son, and the most expendable, he said, Frank, uh, those children will need milk. You take our best cow and walk her over there so the children will have milk. And Frank did that, my grandfather, and he came back and he said what he noticed was he never mentioned ever to anyone anything about giving those folks a cow. And that struck him. He said he noticed that he never sought the people out to say, I'm the great guy that sent the cow to you. He said it was simply a matter for him that the children needed milk and he had more than one cow so he could help. So as he told me about his father, his father was an orphan in the Civil War. His family had been massacred by raiders and uh, They'd burned the farmstead to the ground and stole the horses and cattle. And this boy had run into the bushes at five years old. He was the only survivor. He didn't even know what state they came from. The only thing he knew was his name. He had nothing, he had no one. Uh, the lieutenant, when he saw he was the only survivor, stopped the pursuit and took him to a place of safety on the James River. To a mill, the first place he could dropped this boy off safely with a miller that had one leg called Peg Leg Nelson. And uh, Peg Leg uh, let the boy sleep in the mill and work for his keep. And so he made him a bed of straw in the mill and he worked there until he was 15 years old and was never paid a cent. But in those days at 15, it was time to leave and strike out on your own. And he didn't know 
what to do, how that could happen, because he had no money, no place to get started, knew no one, and the lieutenant who found him, it so happened, passed away. And the lieutenant had willed this boy the land he earned for serving on the Union side in the Civil War. My great-grandfather took that land and became a successful farmer and raised a fine family, and that's why I have a chance at life today, is because that happened. Now, the land wasn't worth much. Land was almost free and those cheap in those days, but it meant the world to that young man, that someone gave him that chance. So, you know, I used to not be able to talk about the lieutenant because I thought it was so noble that he would care. He could have given it to a relative, the land, to a friend, someone else that would have said, that's my great friend, the lieutenant, and got some recognition for it, but instead he gave it to someone who couldn't thank him, couldn't do anything for him, because he knew the boy needed a chance. So I, you know, I thought that was incredibly noble. I wanted to live my life with some kind of contribution to life itself. So I admired him. I wanted to be like him. And yet Bill couldn't bring himself to publicly talk about him for decades. Well, I'd choke up and cry because of the lieutenant. What's wrong with crying? Oh, well, you know, men aren't supposed to cry in front of people, in front of audiences. And I, I, if I tried to tell the story, I just, I just, I couldn't talk. And then I realized I needed to because I decided it was a good example. Because this one person did what he could without getting recognition or being paid, today we affect millions of people because of one act of caring. So I like to say we can't afford to miss a chance to do that because one simple act might be so significant for the world. It might keep your own great-grandchildren from being killed by terrorists. It might, it might, who knows what it might do if you continue down the path of respect for life and caring and what might happen if you didn't. So I used to think it was the lieutenant. That's when I first stopped and it went there. And then I realized, well, it wasn't the lieutenant. It was the person who cared about the lieutenant who made him want to do that. And then, well, it was the person who cared about that person. And then I realized it went all the way back to his love. God's love. That he gave us, that started the whole thing. That's what makes people different. That's what gives us our true humanity, is that spiritual enrichment we get from knowing God's love. And I believe that's why I was told that my responsibility was to reflect, use hearing to reflect his love so people might know him. I think you know him from feeling that caring through other people, not directly. It's through people. So that's my idea. I'm not saying that I know. I'm not a preacher. I don't want to be a preacher. And I don't want to say that that's what God is telling anyone to do. I just know that's what I feel.
in 2010, right after the earthquake in Haiti. Well, I was in Haiti. Miley Cyrus was with me. And Miley's over fiddling with her phone at this Catholic school. And we're fitting kids with hearing aids. And I said, what's she doing? And they said, well, she's tweeting her followers. And I don't carry a phone. That's another thing that's weird that I don't do. So I'm not looking at text. I've never seen our website. Not once. I don't know what's on it. I don't know how to look for it. I don't know what it would be on it. I, I mean, I suppose. It's really lovely. Is it's it? a nice website. Yeah, I mean, I, I would... I wouldn't mind seeing it. It's just that, I don't know, I guess I'm always busy and no one's ever showed it to me. And So, anyway, Miley says she's tweeting that this is the best day of her life. And I said, well, that's what everyone says. That's what President Clinton says. That's what Ray Lewis says. That's what athletes, movie stars, presidents, everybody says this is the best day of their life. Uh, Ray Lewis, right after he won the Super Bowl in New Orleans and he, he was the most valuable player and he goes on a mission with us in March and he said I've been given a job by ESPN but this is the best day of my life I want to do this this is that I've never done anything that's good we're in Tanzania and Africa they all say that and so I said well that's what everyone says and I started thinking billions of followers that's it because I felt like a failure. Uh, you know, the Twin Towers go down, there's terrorism here and there around the world, and I felt like I was losing ground, like we weren't reflecting light as fast as the darkness was encroaching, and I wasn't gonna get the job done. And then I realized, I said, hey, with this, we could affect a consciousness shift with so many followers that admire these people and think about what they're saying, we could compound the message to more and more people and try to get more and more people addicted to good virus. And so I thought that I see the way. So I went home from that experience and I started thinking virtually every day, I really like my job. And I think I know how to do it now if I only had more time. I wish I had more time, but I would never pray for it because I thought I had no right to ask for anything for myself. Because my only prayer every day in the morning before I would leave to work would be for his direction so I might serve better than I've ever served before. God's will be done. And great job, as always, to Alex. He does a superb job on this series. And thanks again to Job Creators Network. And they work hard to fight for the policies that help small business owners grow and hire more people and have more impact on the world. And my goodness, there is just so much here to unpack. But what we did learn here is the power of a story, folks. Him listening to his grandfather the grandfather telling him about this lieutenant. And never having met this man, he wanted to be like this man. And that is the power of stories. It's their imitative power. And that's what we try and do here on Our American Stories. Give you stories worthy of imitation. The world doesn't have enough of those. They need a lot more. And we try to do that for you each and every day here. 
He said, we can't afford to miss a chance. Who knows what it might do and what might happen if you didn't. God's love, that's what he was talking about here, and his responsibility to use hearing aids to reflect God's love so, well, he might know him and we might know him. I'm not a preacher, he said, but my goodness, he's a minister, and he's got a ministry, for sure. Bill Austin's story, the story of Starkey Hearing Technologies, here on Our American Stories.